Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer. Each month I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryert, and this month I have the pleasure of speaking with Rob Wecker. I'm looking forward to this discussion because Rob brings multiple perspectives to the challenge of developing drugs. I met Rob at last year's Patients as Partners Conference in Philadelphia, and we've been talking every few weeks since. Rob, can you please introduce yourself and give our listeners a little bit of your story? Sure. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to talk to your audience. Uh, I'm Rob Wecker. I have 20-plus um, years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, primarily working in R&D, in uh, operations and strategy, um, and uh, enjoyed that work immensely in trying to endeavor to bring drugs to market faster and uh, be more efficient with the money that we spend uh, developing those drugs. Uh, my life took a bit of a turn, though, in, uh, in 2015 um, when I was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And fortunately or unfortunately for me, at least, it was uh, my third time um, receiving a cancer diagnosis. So in 1993, uh, I was diagnosed and treated for testicular cancer. In 2010, I was diagnosed for a liposarcoma in my back. And with both of those, I actually received um, radiation therapy treatment. Uh, but then in 2014, I was diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer. That caused me to take a step back and think about where things were, what I needed to do. Um, I think, Kevin, what, what I found out and discovered from that is that, uh, at least for me, the key element there was really the five-year prognosis. So for my first two cancers, it was pretty curable, you know, in the 90% range. I knew it would be a bit inconvenient. Um, but I uh, was very focused on uh, going through with it and pretty much kept life pretty normal. But when a doctor tells you you have cancer and your chances of survival of five years are on the order of 7% for your disease, that particularly grabs your attention. So uh, that has sort of has been an element for me for the last uh, five years. I just passed my five-year milestone. Um, in terms of dealing with some of life's challenges. Well, congratulations on hitting that five-year milestone. So you're in the, the, what did you say it was, 7%? Um, in 7%, yes. Yeah. Well, glad you're here, um, and I'm glad. Uh, uh, that makes two of us. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your professional experience. Um, what were your roles in biopharma, and, and how did that unfold? So I primarily, um, so I have a background in chemistry, uh, and as I described to my kids, my knowledge, my knowledge of chemistry these days probably fits a thimble, if that much. Um, but I decided early on that I wanted to 
get an MBA as well. Um, so I went and uh, got an MBA degree and then came out and at the time joined a company called Anderson Consulting, which later became Accenture, um, but basically was driven by understanding the cost and value of information and information technology and what it could do for us in the future. And that's probably its own separate podcast, to be honest. And again, my knowledge in that space is, is somewhat limited. Um, but after uh, seven or eight years um, in consulting, um, I moved into the uh, pharmaceutical industry in sort of a, an internal consulting role um, that was positioned within R&D in a large pharma company. And basically, Kevin, you know, my remit at the time was focused on the best way to describe it is non-clinical development. So it's really the groups that don't face uh, the clinical world. So it's pharmaceutical development, chemical development, toxicology, uh, animal testing, uh, DMPK, leading to scale up with manufacturing, interfacing back into discovery. So it's really development from beginning to end and bleeding into both, you know, pre-development and post-development activities. And uh, sort of got the reputation of, you know, someone who asked a lot of questions and was out there looking for opportunities to re-engineer and streamline our operations with a focus on trying to drive down cycle times was one of our key drivers at the time. At the time. It's everybody's key driver all the time, isn't it? Uh, no, not always true. So there's some, <laughs> while everyone would like everything delivered yesterday if possible, and uh, you know, there are times where you need to actually sit back and make the trade-offs between cost, quality, and time. And uh, you know, so, sometimes when you, when you are solely driven, for example, to reduce cycle time, um, and then decide that, okay, well, I'm gonna make phase three trials at risk before I even see the output of phase two, and I've made all this investment only then to see your compound fall over for biology reasons or other reasons or competitive reasons. So when you talk about phase three investment, you were actually talking about the non-clinical investment, like creating clinical supplies for those, creating the drug that actually gets used in the study and maybe even building a plant or, or something like that. Is that what you're referring to? Correct. Correct. So it's really the investment that would be involved in scaling up to provide for clinical trials, supplies, and you know, as phase three trials, if they're, if they're big enough and you actually go to a manufacturing site, then you have to start dealing with some of the technology transfer and other things. But you're oftentimes making significant investments in capital and plant that can then support the process when and if it ultimately gets approved. But a lot of that would be done at risk and the higher and more forcefully that you're driving cycle time, the more at risk you're going to be. 
Yeah. And the trade-off is if you wait, you get your phase two results out. Everybody wants to start phase three right away. And you say, it's going to be 12 to 18 months because we chose not to make that upfront investment. Well, yes. And, and, it, and of course, it gets a little, a little more blurry because oftentimes, particularly if you see outstanding clinical results, right? Everyone's going to try to crunch the cycle times even more. So the clinicians are going to try to drive much more quickly if they can to, to um, conducting phase three trials. And you're sort of behind the eight ball because you all agreed that you weren't going to make that investment at risk up front, but now you're smack in the middle of the critical path and everyone's sort of looking at you saying, I don't understand what the issue is. And I've worked in the company, Kevin, where we had, in essence, a blockbuster-type drug that was in that exact situation and was meeting a fairly large unmet medical need. And we were in the situation where we got approval, but it took us another six to 12 months to be able to launch because we couldn't make the material to the spec that we agreed with the regulators. Wow. So that was actually at the approval stage. You were ready to or you did, you submitted to the FDA and had to catch up with that work. That's really, that's when the pressure comes down uh, from the company. When, when you know, you, you mentioned the critical path, which for people who aren't project managers, that's the steps that you have to take in order to get to the end, whatever your end is. And you were the critical path at that point. You had to be able to make the, the drug according to the specs, which by the way, you mentioned you guys wrote up and agreed with the FDA. So it's, there's so much that's going on. that's not known as those clinical trials are running and it's not always the clinical trial work. It's outside the clinical trial work. Correct. And, and well, but interestingly, Kevin, there, there are times where, you know, you don't necessarily want the CEO to know your name so well. Um, but, but if uh, all of a sudden, you know, you know, an element of the process that typically is not on critical path becomes on critical path, and it's on the investors' minds and the CEOs' minds. You, you get a bit of attention, and uh, you know you, you have to work your way through it. Well, and I think we've seen that, and I don't remember exactly the case, but there was a recent drug shortage, um, and people were were up in arms, like, "How could there be a drug shortage?" What, what does that mean? And it's like, well, you had either an approval that came earlier than you thought, or you had sales, people were using your product much more than they thought, or heaven forbid, you had a problem at one of your plants and you had to shut down for a while. Now you have a gap in your production. Drug shortages are real and drug shortages are, are something no one wants to see, especially if that's the first time you get to meet the CEO. <laughs> Let's shift gears and talk a bit about how your life and perspective changed when you first got cancer. Now, I guess I never internalized it, but I also had a liposarcoma at one point. But you started out with testicular, the liposarcoma, and then pancreatic cancer. And you've done a lot since then. 
So I'd like to hear about the beginning of the experience. When you first heard cancer, how did you react to that? And how did your life outside cancer change because of it? Well, I think there, you know, there's truth in in what people say in terms of, you know, sort of the first time you hear the word cancer from a doctor that's sort of directed at you, it's almost like everything else you you don't hear, right? So I've told and counseled people um, that when you go home, so you go to the doctor's office and the doctor says, you have cancer and then spends the next 20 minutes explaining what it is and the issues and the challenges and your options. And my comments to people is, and I can tell you exactly nothing of what he told me during those 20 minutes because, you know, basically my world's changed instantaneously. And for me, the different cancers had sort of different impact. Was your wife with you in the doctor's office the first time you heard? Uh, she was. She was. And Did she have um, a similar experience of not remembering anything that was said. I yes. I mean, she she probably. I, I probably had an inkling that something was coming because things were moving really fast. Um, you know, with the with the testicular. I mean. And and let's be honest. Let me sort of paint the picture. For me, it was it was um, very lucky because I had a very thorough um, GP or general practitioner who basically was giving me a physical. And ironically, this was a physical that we were having done because I we were looking to adopt uh, children, and so um, I, I guess it comes full circle when uh you know during that process he discovered testicular cancer right but basically was sort of a you know he didn't say anything at the time but i got a call from his office that afternoon uh, you need to go you know you should set up an appointment with this person or get this test to which i said okay well you know i'm, I'm busy it can be a couple weeks you're like no we've got you appointment tomorrow at noon um, and you sort of know that, uh, okay, are you going to tell me or and so no, just, you know, want to run a couple more screens, you know, a little concerning. And, uh, you know, they found out very quickly. And for me, I mean, the, interestingly, I'll sort of jump ahead a little bit, the, the common thread or one of the common threads for me across the three cancers that I've had is I've been very lucky in terms of catching all of them fairly early in the process, right? So for for those of you out there, um, and you all will know who you are in terms of being too busy to go see a doctor when something isn't quite right, uh, I would highly encourage you that you have a responsibility as a patient to get out there and try to understand what the problem is. And maybe it's nothing, and that's fine. But, you know, if it's something, the faster you get a handle on it, you know, those are my two favorite words in the medical vernacular, which is, uh, you know, early detection. Because with early detection, it gives you the best chance. That was the first experience. And you went through a couple more. And at some point, 
you decided to or chose to make yourself heard as a patient. How did that come about? Well, I think it probably was more um, with regard to the, the pancreatic. Um, and I, I think the, the pancreatic um, really sort of um, triggered something in me that was, you know, when you, when you hear the numbers, 5 to 7%, right, as I, as I tell some people in, like, conferences and other venues, you have my attention, right? I mean, that kind of survival rate isn't something you sort of mess around with, right? And you're trying to think of all the things that you can do um, to try to increase your odds. And like I said, when you, when the doctor tells you, and even for me, that was the third time, but I still can say with a high degree of confidence that I did not remember pretty much anything he said after that um and you know plus i knew that pancreatic was you know a bit of a different ball game than the other cancers so i did what every good person does i went home and i jumped on the internet and um you know i'm not, I'm not sure that was the wisest decision because if you go out there and search on pancreatic cancer you have to you have to search really hard to find positive news out there. Um, so, you know, that just sort of put it a bit more into context as well. So I think the question then became, okay, well, it's five to 7%. Again, I caught it early. So I was diagnosed at stage 2B and there wasn't any spreading to other organs or anything. Um, so it really became a matter of, okay, so what, what do I want to do? And I guess here's one of the advantages of being someone who works in the pharmaceutical industry and particularly someone who works in R&D. You know, I had access to a lot of experts uh, in oncology who I could go tap in and, you know, get their opinion on things. It's an advantage. Um, to be sure, unfortunately, the system, you know, the way the system works is you're trying to get information quickly and in uh, understandable form, you know, so I really almost ask whoever you're getting the opinion from in terms of, well, what is it that you would tell me to do? What would you tell your wife or your brother or somebody if they were approaching you or what would you do if you were faced with such a situation and for me i think kevin it sort of came to a head fairly quickly with the pancreatic because the first question out of the gate was do i join a clinical trial or not join a clinical trial and um you know that sort of became an impetus for getting a lot of data quickly and trying to sift through it. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I think I've always had the question of when does that light go on for a patient where they say, you know what, I should consider a clinical trial. And you had three three experiences here, and it was the pancreatic, which was much more um, I'd say much scarier as you hear that diagnosis that that's where you started thinking was what are the clinical trials? The, the 
treatment that's out there isn't at all what you would say optimal. And so you were looking for something better and other opportunities. So did you join a clinical trial actually? So, so I did, um, but let me take a step back because I, I completely concur with your point. What I think was the real trigger for me ultimately in terms of joining a clinical trial or not was, was the number N. And there I'm talking about from a statistical perspective where, you know, it's really a matter of looking and saying, you know, when, when, when you have a small N, right, you need to probe all the different possibilities. And again, for me in pancreatic, I was lucky because we caught it fairly early. So I was diagnosed at stage 2B and really was faced with the situation of, okay, do I go on trial or don't I go on a trial? And let me give you sort of just a little bit of background with regard to pancreatic cancer. So um, there's a small percentage of patients, I think the numbers are about 15%, who are eligible for a procedure called a Whipple procedure. And just footnote that, I always personally worry when I'm presented with a procedure that actually has a name to it um, of probably some doctor, which means it's probably fairly serious. Um, but the Whipple procedure is basically an opportunity to go in and, 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 and cut it out and replumb, if you would, um, you know, all, all, the, all my innards down there to sort of bypass um, some of the issues associated with the pancreatic problem. And it's typically, I don't know, a six to eight hour procedure. So it's, it's certainly not easy. And it's certainly, well, certainly harder on the caregiver who has to sort of sit through it all. But um, the reason the decision was hard was I also decided to explore the possibility of what clinical trials were available. And there was a clinical trial available that basically was high doses of vitamin D. This was a trial um, that was sponsored by Stand Up to Cancer. It was high doses of vitamin D that would be given to the patient with the thought basically that it would help stabilize the tumor, make the tumor a bit more receptive to chemo and radiation uh, that would be received subsequently. Um, but when I started to go around and ask some of my support network, I would say probably 85% of the people uh, who I talked to basically said, no, they wouldn't join the trial. They would just go get the tumor cut out and go through the Whipple procedure. So the, the, basically the two approaches were the standard approach at the time for me would have been cut out, have a Whipple, eight-week recovery period, then three rounds, uh, four rounds of chemo, and then subsequent radiation therapy. 
what was being proposed for the trial was um, one round of chemo up front with dosing of vitamin D, Whipple, eight weeks of recovery, still getting vitamin D, three subsequent rounds of chemo and radiation. And I think everyone's worry was that, well, the fact that it's, you know, that it's resectable means you shouldn't mess around. You should just get it out of there. And I, I struggled with that a bit. Um, and I understood their perspective and certainly, you know, they were more informed than I was. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, I opted to go on the trial. And I guess from my vantage point, primarily for two reasons, right? And I, I'm not sure how rational they were, to be quite honest. I mean, but the first one was if you're going in and doing a Whipple procedure and you're cutting something out and you're not, and you don't get every little bit of it, right? And there are little things remaining in me that then would, ha would, be, would have eight weeks to sort of go unfettered wherever they would go, right? <laughs> now, how real that was, I don't know. Uh, but in my mind, it was like, well, I could, see, I could see that. It was on a simplistic level, I could relate to that. As opposed to for the uh, actual clinical trial, you know, the way I describe it was, well, I did one round of chemo and I sort of viewed that as a bad analogy, but like scorching the earth, right? So we're going to, we're just going to sort of burn everything around it and then we're going to take it out. And my thinking was, well, if we did that and then we took it out, you know, it would be harder for those fragments left behind to grow and do whatever else because, you know, we had already sort of scorched the surface. Right. And um, so that was one of my deciders. I'm not sure it was right or wrong. Um, you know, I think this, the second element um, was a bit more altruistic. And I'm not saying that I'm necessarily an altruistic person uh, outright. But, you know, part of it was, you know, look, someone should we should learn something from this and if i don't uh, benefit from the knowledge gained no that's that's not ideal for me but you know i'd be comfortable with that that at least somebody hopefully subsequently would benefit from whatever additional knowledge was uh, was achieved by participating in the trial so uh, against many people's opinions i opted to do the trial well that's another story of a trade-off you know we talked about it before this is a trade-off of you know do you do the treatment the, the experimental treatment first before you get the procedure you're going to get either way and and you were concerned about the eight-week sort of healing time when you wouldn't be fighting it and I can remember my very short time with, with my liposarcoma that, that I just wanted to fight just every day. I want to fight this thing. Let's do something now. And, and you took a very good approach to that. And the idea that there's benefit, knowledge benefit, um, 
benefit to, to people beyond you? I think probably, I can't say for sure exactly how your, your decision calculus went, but it's, it's a, another piece to it that says, yeah, I think I'm going to do this clinical trial. Yeah. And I think the, the, the thing that surprised me was, you know, having sort of learned more throughout time is I'm a bit surprised at sort of the very low numbers of people who really get involved with clinical trials, particularly in an area like oncology, where you would think that there are, um, you know, situations that are fairly dire, um, that uh, people just sort of don't want to participate. And it's interesting. I would, I would so almost reflect back and I'd say, you know, there's, there's perhaps a bit of a communication issue, and I'll call it the placebo problem, right? Because I believe most patients, when they hear the word placebo, quickly think of a sugar pill, and they're like, well, I've got cancer, for God's sake. I'm not going to take a sugar pill, so I'm not going to participate in that. As opposed to, you know, within oncology, it's really standard of care. Right. So they're not putting you on a sugar pill, they're putting you on the current best therapies that are available and, uh, you know, sort of building trials off of that point. But, but I think there is that, that bit of a hurdle that people just, for whatever reason, don't want to deal with, so they just don't. And, and not to mention, you know, participating in a trial isn't, naturally an easy thing anyway in terms of you know the amount of data that you need to collect and other stuff that uh, you know some people view as burdensome yeah i think everybody's situation is different and everybody's outlook on that you know is different people leap to the conclusion that you know the comparator will be placebo without asking just a little bit more. So what is going to happen here? What would happen in either situation? And you with your background and continuous improvement, everything you can imagine a spreadsheet while you're doing this. I'm just kidding. But you know, you'd have all these factors weighed out and you have to learn, well, what does it really mean? And you ask one more question, just one more question to make sure you understand it before you either decline the trial or decide to go into it. Either way, you, you should have as much information as possible. And let me just add one other thing to that, because I think there's there's a reluctance on the part of patients in general who almost, you know, defer to their doctor and basically, you know, my doctor's a really smart person. I trust them. They're looking out for my interest and, you know, they're doing what's right for me. And I believe that. Um, but you know, I've asked my doctor if she minds, you know, does she take offense when I sort of question her or ask different probing questions? And she's like, oh, quite the contrary, right? And she actually both likes the challenge and it gets her to a point where, you know, she's almost mentally going through the exercise again to make sure she hasn't missed anything, she hasn't in her thinking or her approach um, that would influence me. And as she says to me, look, do you know, you know your body better than anybody, right? Mm -hmm. You just happen to 
also know some of the nomenclature and some of the some of the quote tricks of the trade, whatever those are. Um, you know, sort of enough to make yourself dangerous, but you know, enough to sort of get me to think a little bit. And yeah, there were actually there have been some situations where, you know, in, in talking with her, I've you know, we've sort of made some changes with some patient input. The equations that's being used there, the the discussion that's going on, if it doesn't have that perspective in there and everybody's not to some level of common understanding, just common sense tells you you're not going to come up with the best solution if you're if you're leaving somebody out. And I think that the patients have often been that left out uh, group. Well, just to build on that, one one last aspect, Kevin. I mean, I know I'm talked about, right? So I know the doctors meet and they review cases, and I know they're looking sort of across various disciplines. You know, so I would sometimes, you know, when I was in sort of the throes of treatment, you know, I get calls like eight o'clock on a Friday night from my surgeon. And I'd sort of first say, well, I certainly hope you have better things to be doing than talking to me on a Friday night. But, you know, the sort of the second comment was, oh, well, you guys had lunch today and I came up, right? And he's like, yeah, right. I'm like, I really, I personally would really like to go into that meeting, right? It's like, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, the answer sort of came back. Well, no, not really. But, um, um, but I think they would be engaging and enlightening, right? So, so I, you know, part of me was comforted by the fact that at least the doctors were getting together and agreeing sort of a course of action, if you would, and, and creating the raw plan for this particular um, fight. But yeah, there are elements that, yeah, I'd be very interested. I think the need to have the patient there is always weighed against, well, how is the patient going to react to the things we're talking about? And I think the balance is changing in the world where patients can know anything now. They can be informed. And as you said, you go out on the internet and you get all the bad news stuff. Well, if you could handle that, you probably could handle the guy who actually knows what he's talking about, talking about it and asking you for your opinion or your take on something or whether you just understand it. We've been really involved in this idea of participatory medicine. And this is a perfect example of what the vision would be is that there wouldn't be a meeting about a patient without the patient being there. Yeah. And I think you're right though, to highlight, I mean, it's, it almost has to be a, a, a tailored solution in effect, right? To say, you know, oh, well, we can invite Kevin into that type of meeting because he can handle whatever the dialogue is and won't get overly emotional, you know, and they might look at Rob and say, oh my God, he's a basket case. And, you know, if we bring him in and, you know, he hears the word the, he, he you know, he starts crying or whatever he would do. Um, and it's a it's it's a balance, and it's really a balance. But but I think it does reflect back to sort of priorities and preferences to a degree. So I'll give you a quick example in terms of 
you know, after I was done with my chemotherapy and I then um, had to get radiation and I had to get proton beam radiation and I won't talk right now about the whole insurance angle of that challenge, but let's just say it was significant. Um, you know, and, and my oncologist was explaining to me as well as part of the treatment for the proton beam, you know, it's, they, they typically give you a very, very low dose infusion of chemo agents in there to make the radiation more effective. And she was sort of describing to me, you know, well, you put on a little pump and you, I remember sitting in her office and blurting out, boy, that's noisy, right? In terms of the pump, right? Mm -hmm. And it probably wasn't that noisy, but you know, it was just sort of an initial reaction. I'm sort of sitting there thinking, all right, so I'm going to have this. I'm going to have to sleep with this. I'm going to have to hold my, my arm outside the shower and shower with this and keep it dry and all this other stuff. And of course, I had done enough background to sort of say, well, you know, can't we use some kind of, you know, oral medication? Uh, you know, I know there, there's comparable stuff. And she was explaining to me that, well, you know, it's really important that you, you know, keep the proper dosing and the proper schedule and what her experience has showed her is that, you know, people who are on the pump typically are there and they're not, you know, they're not missing radiation treatments because their levels are off, you know, and not allowed to get radiated at all. And my comment to her as my wife was with me sort of co taking copious notes, you know, I sort of asked her and said, well, you know, what's, what's the average age of your patient? And, you know, it was probably in early 70s right and you know i'm in my the time was in my mid 50s and sort of looking at it and saying so do, are you really sure you don't think we could handle it between me and my wife in terms of taking a pill and and the dosing and whatever the right regimen was and you know we agreed that we change and start on the pill if that didn't work we'd move over but you know for the sanity of my sleep and other things, you know, if I didn't ask the question, we probably wouldn't have made the train change. And, you know, I call it the tried and true approach, which is she knows that she, my oncologist knows it works. And, you know, why wouldn't I go with something I know that works as opposed to overly relying on my patient to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, and it, just the contrast of how hard is it to get, to understand how and when to take a pill or a number of pills versus the inconvenience of not sleeping, having your sh shower be disrupted, all those things. It's like, that's way harder for a patient to deal with than, you know, make sure you take this one at three o'clock, this one at seven o'clock, these two at 10 o'clock, whatever the regimen was. Um, um, interesting. They, she didn't see it that way. So I'm going to ask you, cause we're, we're running low on time here. What are you doing now and how have you blended together your, your pharma experience with your patient experience and, and what are you doing with that? 
So um, basically at this point, um, I I decided sort of towards the end of my treatment to um, retire from working at a large pharma company um, and really focused on trying to, to get better. Um, and for me, to be honest, the, the side effects have been uh, um, a bit more challenging than even the oncology um, courses themselves, right? So my oncologist would tell me, you know, from an oncology perspective, you know, I think you're cancer-free. I think you're doing fantastic. Now, if we just take care of all this other stuff, you seem to, you know, be developing. So, you know, I went to the ER a lot. I I, had very low hemoglobin levels and needed infusions and then needed additional surgery. And of course, because I was still bored at the time, I decided to get shingles in in the middle of it because, I mean, if you're in pain, you might as well be in pain. And footnote, yes, shingles pain is, is brutal. Um, so, so I then decided to, um, again, focus on recovering, really wasn't doing that much. Um, finally got up enough stamina to uh, start paying my debts back to my wife. And we went on a trip to Spain and more or less got through that trip pretty well and decided, um, you know, that I was going to go out and try to do a little bit of consulting Um, and I'm trying to do a bit of patient advocacy. So for example, I sit on the, at the hospital, university of Pennsylvania as a group they call PFAC patient family advisory council, uh, family caregiver advisory council. And basically it's a, it's a venue for various things that go on at Penn for them to proactively solicit a group of uh, patients for input and perspective from looking at life through the patient lens. Um, So I've done that. I've also um, served with a couple of uh, pharma companies on uh, internal patient boards. And those vary from looking at, uh, you know, protocols to providing input to teams to, Again, providing early patient um, visibility and perspective on the development process and how the patient's going to look at the, sort of what's coming out uh, at the end. And I guess I'm also, you know, I, I, I work a little on the side blogging a little bit, but yeah, it is, it is hopefully benefiting others out there. But uh, so my blog is pretty much on LinkedIn. They can friend me on LinkedIn or probably find it directly on LinkedIn. Um, but originally it was, it was actually something that started when I was um, working, started my patient journey. And um, I sort of uh, was writing several newsletters with regard to the pancreatic during the course of, you know, the treatments to you know, share some light with my R&D colleagues of what it was like to, you know, transfer the hat from, uh, you know, from discoverer and developer of medicines to actually, you know, someone who's using them and the, the trials and tribulations of being a patient. So um, what I then did was 
I got feedback afterwards when I sent it out and people started asking me to, to write about some of the broader topics and challenges of the patient. So I've been doing that as Excellent. well. So I want to thank you for your time, Rob. Um, is there one lesson that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, I guess the one lesson would be to, uh, to be proactive patients, right? And that um, we shouldn't be shy about asking questions. As I as I've described it to people, you know, sometimes you know, being like a patient is like it would be like me traveling to Italy and knowing no Italian, right? So the the language is all different. You know, there are lots of scary things going on. There are needles being poked and prodded, prodded into you, and um, you know, I think too often we just sort of, uh, you know, accept what's presented to us. And I think, you know, we need to be informed. We need to be engaged. Uh, we need to influence as we can. Uh, we need to understand from our own personal perspective what our limitations are and not like go way past them. But uh you know, I think it's a much more palatable and effective partnership when you're working hand in hand with your doctor, hand in hand with your employer and all the other stakeholders who are out there, uh, you know, to, to try to progress things. Um, so you can either be a passenger in the front seat or you can sit in the back seat and, you know, hope all goes well. Improbable Developments is brought to you by Salem Oaks Consulting, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins, who produced this episode. The Improbable Developments podcast is brought to you by Salem Oaks. We are committed to empowering patients, caregivers, and advocates to shape the future of medicine. Have you ever wondered how medicines are discovered and developed? We can help. Check us out at SalemOaks.com 